You tell me when you're ready. Good? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for the Incarnation. Thank You for the Christmas season as we rejoice in the fact that our God has come to us when we had strayed from You. Lord, help us to know the joy that You have over us. Help us to uh, have courage and strength to not quit in our battle in this life. Help us to keep pressing on knowing that You have taken hold of us to lead us to our eternal home. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, If you remember last week, we talked a lot about the parallels between life in the Old Testament wilderness and the the Corinthian journey that they're experiencing. And I I had um, made a lot of connections that, that... if there isn't really a similarity between these two, it's not right for Paul to make this connection. So he's basically saying the Corinthians' experience where they are parallels the experience of the church in the wilderness. So if you, ha- if you didn't, weren't here last week, I suggest you listen to that. It's very important. But as I was talking to Danny... Um, he wanted me to, to uh, say one more thing, and so I'll just say it now. The church in the wilderness was made up of some who were true saints and many who were not true saints. So there's a mixture in the Old Testament church. And Paul is assuming that same thing among the Corinthians. He's treating them as all in the church, just like they're all part of the visible church. But he's making the case that some of them may not make it to the new heavens, new earth. You see that that's going on there. So if there's a mixture among God's visible people in the Old Testament, Paul's assuming that there's a mixture here in the, in the New Testament as well. <clears throat> Meaning that very often uh, in the New Testament, Paul and other writers will just talk about the saints. Uh, I'm writing to the saints who are in Corinth, you know, and he's just talking about all of them. They're just the saints. Well, we shouldn't assume from that that because he calls them all saints, that absolutely we're absolutely confident that every last single one of them in the visible church is truly saved. Because that's what Paul is actually warning against here. Don't be like the Israelites in the Old Testament. Okay? Everybody clear on that? Uh, so there's always this mixture. We were closing that in this wilderness period, God nourishes, He nourishes His people. Uh, And He did it through what two things in the wilderness? The manna, got the food, well the quail was kind of a judgment, so uh, the water from the rock, and the rock was? Christ, right? So, um, so he's nourishing his people uh, both with food and drink, 
in the, in the Old Testament. Um, and he doesn't just say that they were getting physical food and drink, which is true. They were getting physical food and drink. But he actually was saying that Christ was nourishing them. So there's some kind of spiritual nourishment that they were receiving, even though some of them don't actually make it to the promised land. Are you following that? Uh, Because, you know, people say, if you're feeding upon Christ, then you should be saved. Well, Paul's saying, well, they fed upon Christ in the Old Testament, but many of them weren't saved. That's kind of his point. Uh, Now, I would argue, this is Paul looking back on this, but of course, as they were eating the food and drinking the drink, they were supposed to be engaging God in his promises in faith. So they were to be looking not just to the elements themselves, but also to the, um, also to the hand that fed them, uh, to God himself, to the Holy Spirit, those sorts of things. So i got a little bit of an echo. Is that normal? What's that? Can't do that. <laughs> Make people mad at me. Might be I'm right over that. Okay. All right. When I, I was here last time. I don't know if that's any better. Probably not, but that's all right. I'll move a little bit. <clears throat> Okay, I would argue that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is using sacramental language. In the same way that when you partake of communion, you are partaking of bread... Through faith in Christ, you are actually partaking of Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. This is my body broken for you. So he's using that sacramental language when he does this. Um, the, 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 in the wilderness, they were baptized into Moses because he was the head of the redemption that they were given. We are baptized into Jesus and the redemption that he has given. Uh, So when it says uh, in verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses, Paul didn't have to use that kind of language. He didn't have to use the word baptism. He didn't have to He could have come up with any other type of word. In fact, the people who actually went through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses, they didn't have any kind of water baptism that they experienced. You know, they didn't get wet going through the Red Sea. It's just that they were included in the redemptive event that Moses gave them. And so in in, uh, Corinthians, I would argue that Paul is saying, you haven't been baptized into Moses you have been baptized into the redemptive event that Jesus gave, his death and resurrection. Okay? But again, this whole sacramental language that Paul is using. Uh, 
I would argue that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he actually gives them the uh, sacrament of communion because he wants them to be nourished by his death on a regular basis. He says, do this as often as you eat and drink this, right? He wants them to remember this and to actually be nourished by his death and resurrection throughout their wilderness journey. So it's similar kind of parallels that are going on here. Uh, look down at verse 16. I think Paul makes this explicit in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Now that's, that's a reference to the third cup of the Passover feast, but it's, it's the one that the that the uh, Christians uh, viewed as Christ um, taking that cup and actually saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So he says, the cup of, blessing, cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? You see how he's talking there. He's actually saying, when you partake of this cup in communion, you are in some sense participating in the very blood of Christ, being nourished by his death. Mysterious, I know, and we can talk more about this when we get to the communion stuff in chapter 11. But for right now, I just want you to see that, that Paul is using sacramental language both in the way that he's talking about their experiences in the Old Testament and connecting it with the New Testament sacraments. Um, so my guess, my question to you now, and this is, I'd be very surprised if anybody has an answer for this, but uh, you might. Um, how does Paul come up with this? I mean, how does, he, how does he make these parallels? I mean, God show up to him one day and sit down and have a cup of coffee and sit here. How do you, how do you know this? How does he know that when they're in the wilderness, they were being nourished by Christ? Where does he learn that? Any ideas? Okay, so Paul may have he may have got it directly from Christ in the in the wilderness. That's very possible. Ah, Clark's got it. What scripture, Clark? That's very good, Clark. Yes, now you're getting it. So, and this is really what I want you to get at. So, Paul's not just finding some new idea, either by revelation from Christ or pulling it out of thin air. He's actually going back to the Old Testament with his, the lens of his New Testament eyes. He's going back to the Old Testament, and he's saying, oh, that's what this is talking about. So, and Clark, excellent, thank you. So let's go to Psalm 78 for a moment. This is Psalm 78. They're talking, the, the uh, title at the top of mine is Tell the Coming Generation. Um, <clears throat> so this is a psalm that uh, one generation of Israelites is supposed to teach to the next generation of Israelites. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works 
and the wonders that he had shown them. So Ephraimites, who are the Ephraimites? Just to be clear. Northern Kingdom of Israel. Uh, In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the lands of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So this is, again, this is, this is the, what Paul's talking about. God was providing for them richly. Yet, they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Who's the he there? Moses, Moses when he was angry, right? You know. Um, can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Now, we could read more on there, but if you go back to 1 Corinthians 10, and you look at verse 5, God did all these things, and yet, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. The idea of overthrown is that they were scattered. They weren't even given a proper burial. If the goal of being brought up out of Egypt was to have a home in the promised land, many of them didn't make it. Now, we are told very explicitly in the Old Testament that only two people over the age of 20 made it. That was Joshua and Caleb. Um, I'm not prepared to say that only Joshua and Caleb were eternally saved. For several reasons. One, God tells us other places that he always preserves a remnant. Um, Talks about 7,000. You know, I think that's figurative language somewhat, but I, it's more than two. Um, I am also confident that Moses did make it to the new, new heavens. He's, he's in glory, and he didn't go into the promised land. So there's, there's a few. Aaron, most likely. Um, we are told that many were swallowed up in Korah's rebellion, and yet later on uh, we hear of some descendants of Korah that God... Um, has saved. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that every last single uh, person uh, that didn't make it in the promised land, we should guarantee, absolutely say, didn't go into heaven, didn't go, didn't make it to heaven, weren't saved. But the point is still the point. It's possible to be in the visible church, walking through this world, being nourished by God, and yet not make it to glory. That's the point. 
There's no way you can get away from that. It's a tough one. I wish I could say differently. You look at the baptism of Moses is spoken of. Because Moses did not enter the promised land, then you've got to uh, associate his salvation with the act of faith. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know who was given that gift of those people who wasn't. Mm-hmm. Certainly some were. Yeah. And I can envision, you know how that first generation, you know, they, they come up and they're about ready to go in the promised land and they, they cho- choose to listen to the advice of the ten spies rather than the two. And, and then God says, oh, you're all out. So he's showing them that a lack of faith is, is why they um, are not allowed in. But you could imagine at that moment or even over the next 40 years, you could imagine some of those uh, older generation truly coming to repentance and truly teaching their kids something different, right? I mean, so it's not like, okay, they're done, they're out. You know, it's, it's, there's, it's more organic than that. But I think the lesson that God is teaching is still the same. You enter the promised land by faith. That's the issue. And don't think that just because you're in the visible church being fed by God that you can get into the promised land without the proper wedding clothes, right? And which is faith in Christ. Repentance of sin, faith in Christ. So, um, okay. Um, let's see. Let's, let's read. Let's just read 6 through 13. We have a mic we can give to someone. Who would like to read? Raise your hand and Nathan will get you a microphone. Oh, Mary's right there. You know she's ready to read. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has ever taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Okay. So first thing he says, um, these things took place. They actually occurred They actually happened in the way that they happened. Why? Verse 6. As an example. example. So, you want to talk about the providence of God. (laughs) So, he takes a whole generation of his people, and he says, I'm going to make a theological point for every other generation that comes after them. You understand that? I mean, just think about... I I almost... (laughs) I almost think of that first generation and go, what? You're just using me as an example for all these other generations? (laughs) You know, it's like your life is not as big as you think it is. 
and, and God has his purposes in your life. Could, could God in his grace have made them all uh, full of faith and walked right into the promised land? He could have done that. But he purposely wanted us to learn from their failure. Okay? Um, so it's, it's an example. It's an example that God did. He always is doing his purposes. Okay, so why, uh, what is it about them that he doesn't want us to emulate? Verses 6, 7, the whole, you know, you can just, what, what are the things that they did? Right, they craved evil. What else? Idolatry, that's, um, it's either worshiping other gods or elevating a gift of God to the level of God, right? You, you care for something so much that it's more than God. It's your God to you. Um, Calvin says that the hearts of men are idol factories. So it's not like, whew, yeah, I don't ever crave evil. I don't ever deal with idolatry. Whew, that's great. That's, no, you're supposed to go, oh, yeah, hmm, I deal with these issues. Uh, there are things that I crave that are not right. There are things that I elevate too high in, in, in life. It could be comfort. It could be uh, security. It could be um, the, the, a life well-ordered and peaceful around you, people treating you well. I mean, whatever it is, you know, you have these things that you want. And um, God taking care of every one of your needs in advance, right? Isn't that what he should tell us? In, he should do it in advance. Give me at least a week's notice. If you're, you know, I, I, I want it all planned out, Lord, the way I want it. You, you, you get the idea. All these different things, right? And when you don't get that, what do we do? Whine and complain, Okay. And we're supposed to go, mm, I am a lot like those Israelites in the Old Testament. Okay? And when God does give you good things, rather than being thankful, what do we do? Say, we want more. The gifts aren't good enough. You know, is this manna again, God? You know, those kind of things. Um, so, uh, when he says, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. Um, He's referring to Exodus 32.6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What is he talking about there? It's kind of symbolic language that he's... There you go. <laughs> That's not an NIV? Yeah, indulge in pagan revelry, right? It's like they were seeking after pleasure more than just the worship of God. John says that too, but yeah, yeah, uh huh. What was the address of that Exodus? Exodus 32 6. Could it be gluttony too? Could be. Yeah, gluttony. Um, I'm sure they were. I think often pagan worship was related to sexual practices as well. Yeah. So. Um, the, the Moses doesn't accent that very much, you know, when he writes it in the Exodus, but it seems to be that, that some of that was happening uh, with Aaron and the calf. 
Uh, we, if there's one element of American modern mentality is that we are told over and over again that it is our right to have as much pleasure, fulfillment, satisfaction as you can possibly have in whatever capacity you want it. Yes. Entitlement to that. And, you know, I'm affected by that. I have to fight against it. That's not what I... Wait a minute. This is not what I'm supposed to be after. Um, so, uh, I would even say that our world never really considers idolatry as evil. It's almost like that's what is good. <laughs> and it's hard, it's hard to know in a person's heart when, when the experience of something good becomes idolatry. And I don't know that Paul defines that here. He just says that this is what they were struggling with and what he thinks we deal with as well. Uh, Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we just, yeah, because we focus too much on like what we call formal idolatry, if you have like a little statue that you're praying to or something, um, you know, it's not the concept that you could make your spouse an idol, you could make your job an idol, you could make your kids an idol, you could make, you know, any one of these things an idol is, is very rarely considered. So. I mean, there's like a show called American Idol. Like, why did they choose that? <laughs> it's true. Other than we're worshiping. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I don't want us to just say that it's easy to kind of retreat into everything around you is just sheer idolatry, therefore you can't engage in anything in the culture. I think Paul really wants you to think more about your own heart. He wants you to think about what it is in your life that... that you feel like you can't do without, you know. Um, And most of the time for me, the idols are really things that are good that I just want more than God maybe, or I don't want to bow those hunger to God. So it's easy for me to look out there and say, Oh, yeah, LeBron James writes the chosen across his back on a tattoo, and therefore that's, you know, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe not. But, but I know in my own heart the desire that I want to be supreme, and that's what I have to deal with. And I think as Christians, Paul's not trying to get people to point fingers as much as he's trying to get them to think about their own hearts. So We, we tend to make fun of the idols that aren't ours. There you go. Say that again on the mic. That's good. We tend to make fun of idols that aren't ours. Right. So when you walk into the Thai restaurant, you see the little elephant or something, you're like, oh, please. Yeah. But when you look in your own heart, like, well, that's not an idol. That's We're, something I worship. That's right. And it's like, ooh. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get at. Not, yeah, so very, very well said. Um, okay. Uh, it makes sense in verse 8 that sexual immorality would be connected with idolatry because God has made 
uh, sexual pleasure to be one of the extreme pleasures in life. It's there. It's one of his greatest gifts. So then he would, he would turn that into something that is apart from, we would turn it into something that is apart from God, something that we could pursue independently of God, those sorts of things. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. All right, here's, I'm going I'm to pick on Isabella. You can answer, I don't know. But what do you think it means to put Christ to the test? No, she said it, and, and I mean, amazingly, my ideas are better than God's. That is ultimately, I mean, I could not have said it better than that. In other words, if your ideas are better than God's, you have just judged God. He's the one on trial, and you want him to live up to your expectations. Now, you have to balance this with the fact that the Bible is full of promises that raise our expectations of God. So, you know, it's, you have to balance. But the idea is when God doesn't meet your expectations, you put him on trial. And you basically tell God he's not good. That's what you're saying. Uh, I have written down. And I don't think it's any better than what she just said. Testing God is really standing in judgment over God. You demand of God to serve you. You flip the roles in your relationship to Him. You play the role of master, attempting to make God your servant. Sometimes we can do that even in our prayers. I think, it, I mean, it's, it's fine to ask God for something specifically, but then to, to do what Jesus did and, said, ne- and say, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Mm. Um, it's a fine line. Mm-hmm. That's, that's well said. It, it is a fine line. You are to express your your disappointments, your frustrations to God. You are supposed to go to Him with what your desires are. He wants you to do that. And if you read the Psalms, they're constantly doing that. But just as you said, at the end of most of the Psalms, they end with praise of God. So, um, so yes. uh, Turn to Numbers 21, verses 5 and 6. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? What was the reaction of the people the next day? Feed us again. Prove yourself to us. As if the previous day didn't prove yourself? You know, and we do the same thing, right? So, okay, Numbers 21, 5 and 6. 
Uh, uh, let's give that to Jim right there. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. When the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. <laughs> so, um, in this, this is just an example that's in Paul. Uh, when he's talking about being destroyed by serpents, he's referring to this incident. And it's interesting, they, they, he says, there's no food or water. But we're loathing the food that you're giving us. <laughs> so there can't be no food and water because they're, they're loathing that. And if there wasn't any water for three days, they'd be dead. So um, they're just not happy. And how often do we blame our unhappiness on God? Mm. Yes. <laughs> they, 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 well, and we do the same. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I think, do I remember what it was like before I knew Christ? How alone I was in the world and how desperate I was? Um, the Bible calls that evil. So sometimes when you think of evil, we just think of some like moral evil that we do against other people. But the Bible really calls evil disparaging the character of God because he hasn't met your expectations in the moment. So, and I think this is helpful to bring out because many of us will say, oh yeah, sexual immorality, that's really evil. But then we're okay with testing God every moment of our day. Right? And he's, but Paul's calling both of these evil well, God called him evil because he sent serpents to kill him. Uh, and then, of course, he provides the serpent for them to look at. And, you know, so. Um, an attitude that is dissatisfied with God. Grumbling and complaining finds its source in pride. Why? You deserve more. That you know better. You deserve better. Mm-hmm. I can't say. Well, let me, how do I say this? Um, these are four sins: sexual morality. So it's like I would just include like. The love of pleasure above God, the um, you know testing God, grumbling and complaining, you know those these are sins. I I don't know that we we absolutely completely get free of any of them in this life, but you want to be found fighting against them when Jesus comes. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for you. 
on whom the end of the ages has, has come. Have you ever heard people say, man, I just, I'm so glad I'm a New Testament believer because God in the Old Testament was so much more harsh. And in the New Testament, he's just, man, he's just an easy guy to get along with. How does this verse just turn that on in? Now, I grant you, there is forgiveness and there is grace and there is all these things in Christ. I would argue that when he held up the bronze serpent and people looked at the bronze serpent, they were looking to Christ too right then and experiencing grace. So, um, 70 times 7, he would say. So God never changes the way He feels about our sin, but He's also very patient and kind as He sanctifies us. And then what's His conclusion in verse 12? What's the conclusion there, Ryan? <laughs> if you think this could never happen to me, Think again. It's why in the Lord's Prayer we say, lead us not into temptation. Because if God put the right temptation in any of our hearts, we would, we would fall away. <clears throat> he doesn't want us, He wants us to be confident in Christ, but He doesn't want us to be overconfident. He wants us to have this reliance, this dependency upon Christ. I want to read verses 13 and 14 together. I had Mary finish with 13, or uh, maybe it was um, Jim. But I want to read 13 and 14 together. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Why do I read those two verses together? Idolatry is the temptation. Idolatry is the temptation, yep. What does he say to do with the idolatry? Flee. Hmm. If God is going to give you the strength to overcome it, why doesn't he say just conquer your idolatry? <laughs> I just think it's a well, it's a nice balance. Sometimes we read verse 12, or I mean verse 13, and we think, okay, God will never let me be tempted beyond my ability. Therefore, I will walk through life and I will never sin. Whatever God brings up to me, I can overcome it. I'm that great. And that's not the way he's, and um, isn't it nice that immediately after that he says, run from it? Well, he does say escape. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Idolatry is the worship of yourself. So if your confidence is in yourself and not in God, mm-hmm. then you're going to be idolatry. Mm-hmm. And you can't ever flee yourself. You can't ever just flee yourself, can you? <laughs> and I, think, I would argue that you have to run into Christ. Christ, please let me run to you and you start purging me of this, this idolatrous heart that I have. I think it's also helpful to understand in this passage that your sins 
in some sense are unique to you. You are a unique person. But in another sense, they're not unique to you. Other people have dealt with them throughout history. And I think that's encouraging because sometimes we say things like, well, nobody's dealt with this like I'm dealing with this. And Paul's just saying, no, these are common to man. These are, the, these are the types of sins we all deal with. And they're actually common to the types of temptations that Jesus dealt with. Because if my temptation is not at least in the same types of categories as those Jesus faced, then, then he doesn't do me any good. Right? So, um, they are common. There's no, there's no like super temptation that somehow, okay, oh, I, haven't, I haven't even thought about that one, he says. I guess you're on your own there. Like, Jesus never says stuff like that. <clears throat> I want to look at uh, Psalm 13 for a moment. So if, if the whole Old Testament was given as an example to us, then I think we can take Psalm 13 as a helpful example to us as well, right? And what do we have in Psalm 13 but David's cry of saying, God, what? So we're going to have this so... Um, Let's have uh, somebody over on that side. Junior, you want to read? Sure. Okay. You're going to read the whole psalm, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. <clears throat> okay, so in, at the end there, you see that positive trust in God's love and his steadfast, uh, his steadfast love and the salvation that he brings. So he's, he's trying to be thankful. But it, the thrust of the psalm is, God has forgotten me. And I don't even know why. Maybe you feel like he, David was on the run from external enemies. Maybe he's dealing with internal sins. He's cried out to God to, to cleanse him. and he's, I don't know what the deal is, but he is feeling like God has forgotten him. So you have to balance. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear with verses like this, right? <laughs> because there are times when you're like, you're not rescuing me. <laughs> Help me. Okay. Um, turn over to Romans 7. This is maybe more even poignant to us. You guys are familiar with Romans 7. This is the same guy who said, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you, can, you bear. And then in 20 through 25, you pick someone there, Nathan. You have the power of the wand. 20 through 25. Now, if I do 
what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So if I find it to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Again, all I'm just trying to say is that if you don't have a robust understanding that you know, him not leading you into temptation is not the removal of all temptation or that you'll ever fail. I mean, you're going to be disappointed, right? I mean, so it is, it is a healthy thing to, to believe that God will produce victory in your life, but it's also a healthy thing to understand that there is a process of struggle. And I think that often God will let there be some indwelling sin in your life to drive you to Christ and to root out pride because I always think God is dealing with two sins whatever the specific sin is that you're trying to conquer and pride itself he's always dealing with both of those and when I think of pride I even think of self-reliance independence rather than constantly clinging to and needing Christ daily so um All right, questions or comments? I'm listening. Somebody has them. Yes, we are. So like, just think you have whatever it is. It could be a struggle against a, a sin, a temptation. Um, it could be uh, a need that you have to get a new job or whatever. Just, just think of you have some kind of lack. And then faith is trusting in God and the promises of God. <laughs> Come here, Jen. You can sit down over here next to me. 
There you go. How's that? Um, faith is the looking to God and his promises to meet this need. You don't, do you want me or not? Okay. Um, but I will say that once you get that which you're wanting or lacking, faith is no longer necessary. Is that right? And so um, it's, it's, and that's not a bad thing. Because then once you get it, then you, you move on to thankfulness. Um, you know, and then you have another thing that you don't have, right? I mean, it's just, it's ongoing. But I just want to say that a lot of times we look at faith as just the, like the, the means to this, right? And so what really matters to us, I want, I want faith, I, I want to have faith so I can get that. But I just want you to know that I think God thinks of it opposite. He doesn't have any problem giving you a blessing, Christ has purchased it all for you. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. What he is ecstatic about is your faith. I mean, what, what about Jesus when he's walking? He says, man, I've not seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. He gets really excited about that, right? Faith is what is matters to him. And so it's not just a means to get what we want. To, to God, he's like, they are trusting That's exactly it. And he's just like, look at my people trusting me. Think about Job. I mean, it's God, God's up in heaven. He's telling Satan, hey, look at my kid Job, man. He's, he trusts me. And Job's oh, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Satan tells him, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And so, ah, harm him if you want. So it's as Job is not being given everything that he wants that he's even expressing greater faith in God. And so I just hope that you guys understand that Yes, when you get to glory, you'll have all the gain. And he does give you gain even now, little pieces. Otherwise, we'd all just couldn't make it. But don't underestimate how awesome it is to him when you haven't been given what is promised and you still keep trusting. That really matters to him. Life is faith. What's the Reformation? Uh, from faith to faith. He wants you to trust Him from beginning to the end of your life. That's what matters to God. Okay. And He helps you do that. Yes. And you're not on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even, even think of like, um, think of David. You know, if you know, he, he fails with Bathsheba. But what happens to his faith after that? Does it end? No. He, he cries out for repentance. And then God renews him. And he keeps going in faith. You know, and so it really, it really is this faith is what's more important, more precious to God than anything else. That you keep trusting in him. Mm. You guys, Matt Robin just said that you're, you're basically telling God you are God and not me. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, it, ultimately, it's important to him because in the new heavens, new earth. But in the short run, it's not as important. Um, I think that in, in terms of the big picture in 1 Corinthians, where is Paul moving us in chapter 13, that is the real goal. Love. Love. It's not even just the conquering of some sin. It's, it's love God and love other people. I mean, that's, that's really where he's moving us to. Because <clears throat> what's happening with the Corinthians, this big picture, they have been given spiritual gifts. Out the wazoo. I mean, unlike any other church that I know of, they, in the New Testament, not just historically, but in the New Testament, they have been given spiritual gifts. And what did that lead them to? Pride. Division. Lack of love for one another. And Paul is saying, that's not what it's about. It's about being in a community where, yes, one other member of the community will hurt you because of their sin, and then they will be broken by God's Spirit, and you will forgive them, and there'll be reconciliation, and there'll be love in the community. That's more important. And the world cannot see that. They judge it. They do. They don't allow God to work His miracle in you, redeeming you. Yes, Dan. What you have faith in is more important. So mm. Jesus is love, and so love is the epitome. The, the, the Christ-like love is the epitome of what you have faith in. Mm. So, and, and that's, and I mean, that is the... So, faith recognizes that love does not originate in you. And therefore, you have to receive, you have to go to God as the source of love. You have to receive from Him the right, that love. So, it, you know, again, um, clinging to God is the key to all of this. So, yep. All right, I'm trying not to go fast on this. I want you guys to think it through. I, I'm, I really don't want to go. Okay, I think we'll go 14 through 22. But um, Mike Starnes, you want to read for us? Uh, that exalted King James language. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, but we are all partakers of that one bread. How far? 
Uh, all the way through 22. Okay. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Are all things lawful for me? Oh, that's good. Stop right there. You're good. Okay, so, all right, just general impressions first. I like to see what things kind of pop up in your mind as you hear Paul talking here. We have a choice. Mm, okay. What do you mean by that, Clark? We have a choice. Well, we are free to, to choose between good and evil. Mm. If we're free, we have freedom, we're not... Robots in Christ. But Christ, I mean, the, the command here is to flee from idolatry, and so that's a choice you have to make just for yourselves. Mm. Good. All right. Other observations here. The importance of uh, communion and the body of Christ. The church being the body. Yep. <clears throat> It's interesting to me that he goes from talking about, oh, there are some people in the body of Christ that are not true, truly saved, right? I mean, that's the point of the earlier part of this chapter. And now he's talking about the communion that you have with the rest of the body of Christ. There's like a union, a communion with the rest of the body here. All right, keep going. Other observations? <laughs> it's a it's a necessity. You can't play both sides of the fence. Excellent, Peter. What does it say about um, an actual idolatrous engagement, like a formal engagement in idolatry? What did, what does Paul say is happening? What's that? You're actually sacrificing to demons. And he's not just saying you're, at, you're sacrificing to demons. It's like you're a participation with them. You're being deceived by them. Excellent. And that makes the Lord jealous. And it makes him jealous. Good. This is a good kind of jealousy, right? Because God has brought you to participate with Him in this intimate relationship. And now you're taking that and you are going and engaging in this uh, idolatrous practice. Uh, it makes Him mad. All right? Anything else? What does it tell you about communion? How does God think about communion? Well, 
Is it just a, just a remembrance, right? Just having a birthday party. There you go. What does that mean? Part of our union. Yeah. It's, it's communion in the body as the church, but also in the body of Christ himself. This, and we'll get to this uh, in chapter 11 when he's talking about examining yourself. If you can't discern the body of Christ, if you don't understand what this is talking about, then you shouldn't be taking communion is really what he's saying because you could bring judgment on yourself. But here he's laying the foundation. When you come into communion and you sit down to have communion with God's people, you are participating. You are communing with Christ and the rest of the body. The cup of blessing. That's right. All right, this will be quick. And then we'll end with this. So, um, there's the Catholic, which is uh, transubstantiation. And then there's the Lutheran. There's the Reformed. And then there's the Zwingli. So the Catholic basically says that the, the actual elements are transformed. The Lutheran doesn't say that, but it basically says that the body of Christ, if this is the element, the body of Christ is here, it's all over the place around it. Uh, but it still connects it to the element itself. The Zwinglian view is that it's, Christ isn't present. Christ is in heaven. Uh, his body is in heaven period. It's just a memory of what he's done. And the Reformed view is that uh, Christ is present, but he's present spiritually. Um, so, and as you receive the sacrament in faith, you actually are receiving Christ. So there's a, so that's the, the, the different views. I could go into them a lot more detail later, but we just don't have time right now. So, um, okay, so we're, we're, as we finish out chapter 10, and as we move into chapter 11, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper even more. So I hope that you'll contemplate this, maybe go back and read the confession statements on the Lord's Supper, catechism questions, try to understand the Lord's Supper more, and we'll flesh out some of those questions. Father, thank you so much for your people. That We are a body of Christ. Help us to take seriously how easily it is for us to fall away from you. And help us to continue uh, clinging to you, uh, confessing our sins, uh, reaffirming our faith in you, uh, trusting in you in all things. Help us to love one another. Um, help us to walk by faith. Thank you for the sacraments that we are nourished by them. Um, and help us to know uh, how much you love us through them. In Jesus' name, amen.